Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. And you know what, guys? I'm just going to jump right into it because today's interview was so epic and so fun. We actually ended up recording for like almost two hours, but you know, don't worry. I cut out the parts where my four-year-old came in and interviewed her as well. Alka Joshi was born in India and raised in the U.S. since the age of nine. She has a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from California College of Arts. At the age of 62, Joshi published her debut novel, The Henna Artist, which immediately became a New York Times bestseller. A Reese Witherspoon book club pick was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and is being developed into an episodic series by Miramax TV. Super excited about that. And the sequel, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, comes out this June and will be followed by the third book in the trilogy in 2022, which doesn't have a name yet. I asked her. And um, I also did ask her if I could be the Jaiwala, the coffee person on the set for the series. Um, she hasn't quite hired me yet, but you know, I'm working on it. Super fun interview, guys. Olka has some epic stories. I hope you enjoy my interview with Olka Joshi. Ami, if my earrings make a funky noise against the headphones, I'll take sure. them off. I love them, though. That's beautiful. I, I've seen some of your interviews. I'm like, her necklaces are on point. These are awesome. You know what? I get all of this from my mom. Oh. My mom loved jewelry, and I think she got me to absolutely love jewelry. I love playing with her jewelry, and then she started making jewelry for me. So, like, these kinds of things. She she could just make these, right? Because it's just like a circle and a and a... Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Was the one, was that necklace that you are wearing um, during Reese's interview? Was that from your mom? I can't remember which one I was wearing. Was that the Payal? It was like a, yeah, it was like, it, yeah, it looked like a Payal necklace. So, yeah. So I have all of these Rajasthani silver piles from my mother. Okay. And I use them as necklaces because ah. I'm usually wearing shoes that really don't, you know, like if I'm wearing sneakers walking around, I, you know, you can't really wear an anklet with it. Right. 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 And they're, and they're heavy. Like they're, you know, they're this long and they're heavy. And so it's just better on my, on my neck. So that's how I, I like, I like the idea of putting the file on your, I used to love wearing it when I'm little, but I like now at the age of 41, I don't think I can walk around like jingling. So I have. Oh my I, God, you are not 41. That is I amazing. Am. You look amazing. I wow. am. I wore my girl gang hat for Lakshmi, <laughs> for Lakshmi and her crew. And I got the book two days ago. I, and I haven't read a book. I am not kidding you. I know this is sad, but I have two little girls, seven and four. I have been podcasting for this past year. So between podcasting, the girls trying to keep our home in one piece and then trying to pay attention to my husband, I'm like, I haven't read a book. This is the first book I have read in a very long time. And I know you're the author, but I'm saying this to you, even just as a person, it is, it's amazing so far. I'm going to be able to finish this in a week, which I would never say about most books. So I'm very, <laughs> very excited about it. Um, I kind of want to start at the beginning. So 
Um, you know, I know you've done a lot of interviews about obviously the the henna artists, and we'll definitely talk about that. But I kind of want to know more about you um, and growing up. So I know you grew up in Rajasthan in four different cities until you were nine, and then you also lived in Chandigarh. Uh, for a year while your father was getting his master's, his first master's. Um, so I can imagine like a lot of us that Indian culture, food, language, crucial part of who you are, your DNA. Um, and so talk to me about growing up in Rajasthan. Like if you had to close your eyes right now, what would you visualize? What would you smell? Like what music would you, did you have a favorite song growing up there? Like what, what would be your story right now of how it was growing up there? So we were, the last place that we lived was in Bikaner. And uh, I remember what our driveway looked like. Uh, there was, you know, a high fence all around with glass shards on the top, as you know, a lot of houses do, do have. Yeah. And uh, so the uh, bicycle would come in and uh, he would leave his newspaper. That was the newspaper boy. He would leave his newspaper out in, you know, in the front. And then, uh, you know, one of the uh, servants would come and get it. And then we would be inside with my mom getting ready for school. My dad would already have left in his Jeep to go to work as an engineer. Our uh, servant would put us on his bicycle uh, to take us to St. Sophia, which was the convent school that we used to go to. So we had these little blue starch uniforms on with this little sash that said St. Sophia on them. And then uh, I might sit on the handlebars and my two brothers would be, you know, sitting behind uh, the, the main seat. And as you know, in India, you can get six people on a bicycle. Oh, yes. <laughs> there, are, they, there are some amazing talent there for sure. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then um, I remember the smells were always like curry smells, really rich smells with spices. And uh, of course, I loved jalebis. My mother would always ask the cook to make jalebis because, you know, they take a while, you know, to make and they're kind right. of messy. Uh, I love gulab jamun. You know, I have always been a sweets addict. I love Ras Malai. And then, of course, I love rubbery, which is what uh, Malik ends up asking for in the henna artist from the Jaffer Palace. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny because every time I go to my whole family's from Gujarati, my family all lives in Bombay, but I, every time I've gone to India, and I've lived in India for four years uh, for, 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 for various reasons, but every time I go, go back there, Jalebi, Gulab Jambu, Ras Malai, the Pani Puri on the streets, I can just eat it all and have yes. no problem. But then when I come back here, for some reason, I just can't digest it. It's it's just oh. something something about the sweet, the way they make it there, the air. I don't know what it is. And then I don't gain weight over there either. I just keep eating. It's just amazing. <laughs> and so, yeah, I hear you on just that that smell and the the remembering yeah. the my the yeah. cooking, my grandmother cooking in the kitchen. Um, and so, yeah, it's oh. just great. And I'll tell you one more thing, Ami. Uh, we had a cow. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was a huge, it was one of those British bungalows that the British left behind. So we lived in one of those. And there was a huge acreage. Uh, and there was a creek running through on one side. And we had enough of a yard that we had a cow. And so my dad insisted on having fresh milk every day. 
And of course, you need milk to make a lot of Indian kheers and, you know, all kinds of wonderful dishes. And so, uh, yeah, he insisted on having a cow. So somebody had to milk the cow every day. Not us, but, you know, somebody else, the cook did or his wife did. <laughs> that That's a lot of work. My mom would tell me she had a, she used to go to Dwarka, which is a village in Gujarat, and they would have to like pump the wells and stuff like that. And it's kind of, you know, when, the way you're talking and the, when my mom uh, describes her childhood, um, it just, it, it reminds me of a scene from movies, you know? You know, just it's exact. It's kind of a, in a weird way a fantasy. Yeah, and it's so vivid. I mean, right? Yeah, and uh, and like you know, I can still smell uh, cow dung, which is not an unpleasant smell, frankly. It's just it a earthy kind of smell. Right. So I yeah, I remember that smell. I remember going to visit my father's village, uh, which we did often. And when we went to his village, you know, there was no indoor plumbing. So you actually had to go up into the hill and, you know, do your business uh, up in the hills. Yeah. But then you have to watch out for the wild boars. <laughs> That's a whole other, like, ball game there, obstacle course. <laughs> you, I would be holding holding it in for a while. <laughs> like, you know what? I'm good. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember going to India uh, in the 80s and my uncles didn't, we couldn't flush the toilet. So you get the water from this, from this like little sink next yep. to you, do right. it manually. Yeah. 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 You really, uh, really have to like put an effort into this whole, whole process. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, as a kid, I was so used to it, right? Like, this is just what you grow up with. You don't even think this is unusual or that there's anything to talk about. Now, then when we come to America, and I, I think this is where you're headed next, Dummy, is when we come to America in 1967, I was nine, my brothers were 11 and eight. Right. Now, all of a sudden, we have come from an environment in which we are just one of many to an environment in Iowa at the Iowa State University where dad is getting his doctorate. Now, suddenly, we are in amongst all white people. Right. And it was a real eye opener because, uh, first of all, we'd never been around white people before. <laughs> yeah. Is, you're you know, like, wait, what's happening? They're real. Right. right. <laughs> we look so different. And of course, everybody notices how different we are. Everybody notices how different our names are. And so we are being asked all these questions about, you know, where did we get that tan? Uh, and, you know, how is it that we uh, know English so well? Right. Uh, you know, are we literate? Do we know how to read? Uh, there are all these questions being leveled at us that I just don't even understand. You know, I wanted to hide behind my mother's saris. I, I was a shy kid anyway. And I just thought, okay, I can't handle whatever these people are asking. And I don't know how to answer them. Did you ever feel like I was negative at all, though? Or was it just curiosity? Absolutely. No, I think most of the time I felt it was negative. Because in 1967, I'm so much older than you are, Ami. I'm 63 now. So in 1967, when we came here, very few people had ever been to India. They didn't know anything about India. And the history books only reported the British side of the story of India. So the way they left India in uh, 1947 was as a much poorer country than they had found it 200 years prior. Right. And so the only impression the Westerners had of India was that it was dirty, it was illiterate, there were beggars on the streets everywhere, that the cows were running amok on the streets and nobody knew what to do about them. I just didn't understand what they were talking about. 
that wasn't my India. And uh, I think what I did was I just kind of retreated into myself. I was already shy. I just wanted not to talk about India. I wanted not to be from India. After a while, I just didn't want to be brown. You know, really? I just wanted to be American like everybody else. I wanted to be accepted like everybody else. Right. And, and I think, you know, I totally understand what it's like when you are the only brown person in your whole class or you're the only black person in your class or you're the only Asian person in your class, you know, Chinese or Korean or whatever. Everybody notices your difference and highlights it in every which way they can. So you just want to retreat. You just want to be like everybody else because as a kid, you just want to be accepted. As a kid, especially, I was going to say, that's the time you want to hide. Like you don't want to, you don't get the concept of, okay, it's great to be different. It's great to be me. Like that takes time, you know, as, as you get older and in confidence. And so, yeah, all you want to do is belong. So, so then how was high school for you? Were you in Iowa for high school as well? We were, by the time I was in high school, we were in Kansas. <laughs> so uh, not, not very much different, I got to tell you. So we were in Iowa, then we were in Missouri, then we were in Kansas. Oh, wow. You did the whole tour right there. We did the whole Midwestern Bible Belt tour. Wow. Okay. And it is very homogenous, or at least it definitely was in 1967. I think there are way more Indians now, but in the late 60s, early 70s, it wasn't very, um, you know, diverse. <laughs> right. Well, I just moved from Arkansas. Um, I'm not from there. I'm from Houston, actually. But we moved around quite a bit because of my husband's job. This is my I'm in Greenwich, Connecticut right now. Um, Arkansas, two years, we were in Bentonville. And this was we moved about three right when Donald Trump became president. The first thing I thought, having lived in the US my whole life, I was like, do brown people go to Arkansas? Like, how does this work exactly? Um, we got to Bentonville and I was surprised to see how many Indians were there, you know? Like, things are changing in that area too, so. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but there were several migrations of Indians in the United States when that kind of uh, visa and migration was allowed. Uh, the first, I believe, was in the 1960s uh, when my, well, first, I think it was in like the 1920s, 1930s. The second was in the 1960s, which is when my father uh, brought all of us to the United States. And then the third, I think, was in the 1970s and 80s when the high tech uh, arena was getting really uh, going. So, and all the young engineers came. So uh, now there are quite a few Indians in the United States that, you know, South Asians in the United States that never used to be there. <laughs> Definitely. And, and doing many, many interesting and cool things. Yeah. My dad, my dad came in 1965 for, for his master's in engineering. So he, he was part of, part, part of that way. Yeah. <laughs> During high school, um, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do career-wise where your parents the typical South Asian parents saying doctor, lawyer, engineer, or were they like, okay, do what you want, follow your path? I had really unusual parents. Uh, I, our parents never told us what to do in terms of a career. So I was always artistic. They knew I was artistic. I love to draw. I love to paint. I love to create craft. And uh, they said, you know, honey, do whatever you want to do in your life. Just make sure that you can earn a living doing it because you're going to need to support yourself. This is not like India where we will shelter you uh, forever, uh, you know, or that you will be living with the family and so on. You will have to create your own life in this new country. And so please make sure that you can support yourself. 
So I always thought, okay, I'm going to be an artist. I thought I would be a graphic designer. I would be a commercial illustrator like Andy Warhol. I thought that maybe I would be a graphic designer like um, Martin uh, Milton Glaser. Uh, I thought that I might be an art director at some point uh, in an ad agency. And in fact, in the 1980s, uh, when I first went for my job as a in advertising, because I thought, okay, here is a way that I can use my creative bent and employ it to an industry where I could be making a lot of money and totally support myself. So I go for my first job, and this is in San Francisco at McCann Erickson, and they look at my portfolio, and they say, well, you want to be an art director? And I said, yes, yeah, I've always wanted to be something artistic. And they said, well, he, who wrote all of the headlines? Who wrote all of the text on all of your ads? And I said, oh, I did. And they said, well, why don't you want to be a writer? I said, because I want to be an art director. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I thought I wanted to be, of course. And they said, they said, no, 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 we have a position for a writer and we will hire you as a writer. So that's what that's what the first writing job I ever got was that one. So that's uh, amazing. Yeah. And they kind of directed me towards this field where I actually did get to employ a lot of my artistic sensibility in creating commercials uh, and uh, art campaigns or ad campaigns and marketing campaigns. But I also got to hone my writing skills and tell mini stories in advertising and in radio spots. I was really developing dialogue. I was developing how to develop characters. You know, I was learning so much in the advertising field. I wanted to rewind. And I know you had mentioned in, a, in an interview that you feel like you became an accidental writer, which me and you have that in common. I haven't written a book yet one day, hopefully, but I became an accidental writer in India and started writing for Condé Nast Traveler and Vogue. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm a writer wow. now. And it's, and I just absolutely loved it. Um, another quick question I had about growing up was um, dating and relationships in your household. How did your parents feel about you dating? Were you allowed to date? Were you allowed to date outside of the South Asian culture? Like, how was that in your household? So as I said, my parents were very, very unusual. And I think they felt that as long as we were in this different country, we could be different people. We could, they could raise their children very differently from the way they had been raised. Uh, and as I said, we were not around any other Indians. Wherever we lived, my father said, um, you know, I need to make sure that my children have the best education possible so they can get into the best colleges possible. And the way to do that was to find where the best schools were located. Well, the best schools were always located in the white districts. And so that's where my father always uh, found the houses for us to live in. So I didn't grow up with a lot of Asians around us. So my parents just kind of made up their own rules. My older brother started dating first. And at first, I think my father was uh, against it. He didn't really understand what dating was all about. But I think my older brother broke ground for us in all kinds of ways. You know, he thank was, God for older brothers. Yeah, thank God for older brothers. <laughs> you know, he was the first yes. one to uh, drink and smoke pot and you know do all that kind of stuff. And thank God, you know, today today he's a doctor. And you know, I mean, he's you know, it's it's not like it it you know it took him on some road that he didn't want to be on. He really always right. wanted to be a doctor, so he became a doctor. Um, right. But, uh, you know, he kind of paved the way for us. Now, I would have dated in high school, but I was so shy 
that I couldn't even talk to boys. That's how shy I was. And so I just drew, I drew my little pictures all day and I studied my textbooks. I actually love school. I love learning. I love, if you can even believe it, I love taking tests. I just loved all parts of school. That's, a, that's great. That's yes. the, the hardest part. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So then uh, at 18, I went off to Stanford to, uh, you know, college. And that was where I got my first boyfriend. That was, uh, I don't know, I just felt like I was in this in this whole environment where I was not sheltered at home anymore. I was in this whole free kind of environment. And I made lots of different kinds of friends. And uh, I found that boys were interested in me. It was just me who was sending out signals like, please don't talk to me. I can't talk back to you. So yeah, I had my first boyfriend. I come home for Christmas and I say to my mom, you could tell my mom anything. So I say to my mom, mom, I think I want to sleep with this guy. And my mom said, oh, okay. So we'll make an appointment for you. We'll get you birth control pills because honey, one thing I really want to stress is that you should not get pregnant before you get married and please do not get married until you can support yourself. So these are two conditions I have and I followed them to the letter. So, yeah. And then the other thing she told me, which kind of blew my mind, um, and in ways, I think I was far more of a prude than my mother was, because what she said to me is, do not marry the first guy you sleep with. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm, I love her. I mean, you know, <laughs> She's awesome. Yeah, I know. I know. And she said, she said, you know, because you, you don't know what you like yet. So if you experiment, maybe you'll figure out, oh, this is what I like more than that. And, you know get to know people in different ways. <laughs> That's amazing. I love her. She's awesome. So we we have a few things in common, uh, Elka. Well, I have an older brother, doctor, kind of took the hit for, for things, was the first one that started dating, dated outside of our culture. All And my parents are like super insane, strict South Asian <laughs> gujus. Um, and so, I mean, I went to Hindu camps every summer. That's wow. what I was doing. I was also, on, people don't believe it, like none of my friends would believe this. Very shy in high school. Never thought boys liked me. I had to get set up for prom. I got set up with a, a guy that was actually married that I didn't know that he was married. <laughs> it's a whole other. It's a whole other thing. It did not help the self confidence at all. I was like, this is fantastic. What's happening here? Um, and then when I got to college, I discovered I'm like, oh. Actually, boys do like me, and it's all—it was all me. I—it I, was all just my vibe with the energy I was putting out. So this whole story, everything you just said, I totally can relate to that. Right. Um, and the other thing we have in common is my husband is a Stanford grad as well. Ah, okay. So, so then, so then you're in Stanford, which is a fantastic, fantastic school. I—I've I've visited before. We're hoping to go to his twenty. 20 year reunion this year. Hopefully, if it's if it's open, the world is open again. Um, and then I know eventually you got your MFA from California College of Arts later down the road. Um, but you you did run your own advertising and PR agency for 30 years. And this was your own business. Yes. So how, how was that? How did you enjoy that? Well, I loved it because uh, I think I figured out a couple of things about myself in the first couple of corporate jobs that I had. You know, when you work for large agencies, you are pretty much following somebody else's path. You are doing the kinds of things that they are asking you to do. You are, um, you are, you know, beholden to whatever their corporate rules are. And uh, what I found is that there was always this glass ceiling. I could not get beyond this ceiling. 
I would see the boys next to me in um, the ad agencies. I would see the boys next to me making more money than I did. And I would go to my bosses and I would say, well, why aren't I getting paid as much? I work just as hard. I uh, come up with as many ad campaigns as they do. I, uh, my clients love me. And the, you know, the excuses would always be so lame. They would be like, oh, well, we ran out of um, the money this year. Uh, you know, it's no longer in our budget. Or, yeah, we can't give you that bonus because uh, we haven't gotten paid yet from the client. Or, um, you know, you're just not that good. And then there would be these other kinds of remarks like you are a troublemaker. You are such a troublemaker for asking. You are asking for more than you deserve. Uh, stop overstepping. And I just, oh, yeah, God, that's so yeah. frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is in the eighties that this is happening. And I just thought, okay, stop, stop already. I, my confidence at that point would just go down and down and down after one of these uh, sessions. And at some point I woke up and I thought, you know what? I don't need to pay attention to this. What if I set my own rules? What if I did my own thing? And I set up my own ad agency. Uh, what I did was I hired only women because women don't get as many options as men do. So I hired females to write the copy, to art direct, to do the event planning, to be my accountants. And then I translated that also into my home. So I hired female contractors, female plumbers, female electricians. This is something we all of us women can do to support other women who are in professions that we nor don't normally think of them in. Right, so, right. And in my very first year out, I made, what was it, seven times the money that I had ever made working for other people. And that really boosted my confidence because I thought, okay, I don't have to have somebody else validate that for me or somebody else say, no, you are not good enough. I am good enough inside. And I think we all are as women. I actually think that women are more poised, are better positioned to uh, have their own businesses, to run their own businesses uh, than even men are because we are such multitaskers in our day-to-day -day lives. And that is what is required when you have your own business. You have to multitask. And also, a couple of other things I discovered about myself. One is when you work in your own business, you will work all kinds of crazy hours because you're doing it for yourself. Right, I mean, I, right. I always used to work for other people, but it was always, you know, I would work the long hours for other people, but it was always with the um, fear that I wasn't going to be good enough at the end of the day. And now with my own business, I was able to say, I am good enough at the end of the day, but you know, I'll still stay up till two o'clock in the morning if that's uh, somebody I need to talk to, uh, you know, uh, in Europe or something. So yeah. It's not driven out of fear or having to do something to finish, finish it, to make sure someone else is satisfied. Exactly. You know, this is all for you. And I, I have a whole section. I want to talk about pearls of wisdom that I've heard you say that I just love. And one of them is that I've learned finally at the age of 40 to invest in myself. Women need to invest in themselves. And I definitely want to talk about that. Um, I wanted to quickly ask you also, how did you meet your husband? <laughs> I met him through friends. Um, I had a friend, Diana, who always said, I have this guy friend named Brad. I think you guys would love each other. First, uh, you know, he's he is uh, teaching at Stanford right now. And so you guys have that in common. But also, uh, he is a writer. 
And I know that you love writers. I loved writers from the very beginning. I loved anybody who was artistic. I love painters and writers and uh, designers and anybody who could use their creative imagination to make something. So she said, I think you're just going to love him. Now, at the time that she first said that, I was actually in a relationship with another person. <laughs> And that's uh, all that always happens, right? <laughs> that's right. And I said, Diana, I'm not even looking. I'm not, you know, like, thanks, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. And then when that relationship fell apart, she said again, there's this guy, Brad, and I really want you to meet him. So, uh, so then she did introduce us and, you know, I felt comfortable with him right away. I could totally, Aww. yeah, I could totally see what she saw in him. He's a very elegant man. He's emotionally super supportive and he's a great writer. And it took him about 15 years to convince me that I was also a good writer, that I wasn't just an advertising hack, which is how I thought of myself. He said, no, I think you can really write fiction and you can do a beautiful job with it. Please take some workshop classes, get started. So then I finally did listen to him. You know, sometimes our husbands do know better than us. <laughs> you married the right guy. Yes. Yes. My, yeah. Again, it's kind of parallel to you. My husband was like, if this podcasting thing is something you want to do, you're good at it. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it together. Let's make this happen. And so I'm like, oh, Maybe I should actually take myself seriously. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I've had 20 different careers, Olga. So that's a whole other podcast. Oh, me too. But, me too. Oh, God. Like, I am the jack of all trades. <laughs> I've oh, tried. Yeah. I'm a lawyer. I was a backup Bollywood dancer in India for a year. Wow. For a, I don't know, some <laughs> random pop star. I was so bad. Oh, my gosh. I, well, I so went to DJ you... school in Delhi. Oh, my God. I, so did you... Um... So did you did you uh, rub elbows with the glitterati in India? I've had some interesting stories. I've smoked some pot with Jackie Shroff. I've uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had some randomness happen to me there. Yeah, because I lived there for in Bombay for a year. My first job after I went to UT Austin. My first job after UT was at Enron, which didn't work out. But I didn't do anything wrong. I promise. I didn't know what was going on. And then between Enron and law school in Chicago, I lived in India for a little bit. Uh, Cause I was like, I had this creative side in me, but I knew I had to do law or medical or engineering. So I chose law. And then while I was in India, I was like, I was working at Red FM radio in Bombay and backup dancing. And God knows what I was trying to try it out to be a VJ. And then after a couple, like seven, eight months, my mom and dad are like, you need to come back here. It's, it's time. I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. That's fine. So, Did you also feel like, okay, I, I need to get grounded again. I think that's always going to be in me just because of the way I grew up. And I, I, and the older I am getting, the more I'm realizing I do need that grounding. I am able to fly still, you know, I can do both. Um, and that's why I know I'm married the right guy. Cause he's key helps me with my feet on the ground, which is, which is what I've needed my whole life. So then the rest of me can just fly because I still have that in me. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good it's a good combination. And then becoming a mother also grounds you yeah. heavily in a, in a good way, in, yeah. a, in a great way. Um, but they also, having my daughters has pushed me to do more with my career. You said that you had to be a lawyer, doctor, or an engineer. Why? Why did you have to be one of those three things? Partially my fault, you know, kind of conversation in my head, in our community in Houston, lots, most of our friends, family, friends, family, they were doing one or the other. It was just 
that's the way, that's a good career. It's safe. It's the way you make money. It makes sense. Like going into, if I had to go back, I would go back to journalism school. I mean, no question, no question, you know, and I never really had the guidance for it. My parents didn't really have the know-how to like help guide me. Right. I didn't know what I want. I mean, I graduated in economics for God's sake. I don't, I, I hate math. Like I don't even understand (laughs) why, how, so like that's part of the reason I started the podcast. It's called Tuckered Out because I've moved nine times, had so many careers. My last name is Tucker. People have called me Tucker my whole life. And I, I just decided to interview South Asians about how they figured out their career choices and was it because of their families. It's just it's been part of my my storyline for such a long time. But on the flip side of that, I've tried so many fun things. Yeah. You know, yeah. and also because of my husband's job and his, the way he views life. Yeah. We've lived in India. We went back to India, lived in Bombay and Delhi yeah. and Bangalore and Dubai. And then we moved all around the US. And so I've gotten this chance to actually try and try again, which has suited my personality, thankfully. Otherwise, a lot of, a lot of spouses or partners would be like, this is annoying. I can't do this. Right. Well, I think that. I think one thing that moving around also gives you is it gives you a lot of different perspectives, the way that other people perceive you in different parts of the world and also the way that you perceive them. So I think that, you know, I would advocate for everybody, no matter where they live, to always move around like at least four times before you are ready to settle down in one place and, you know, have children. Because I think it's in the moving around, it's in the getting to know different cultures, different people, that we really grow up, that we really understand what tolerance is, that we understand also what other people bring to our lives, people who are totally of a different culture and so different from us. Uh, I mean, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, for me in my life, I feel like the three biggest things that has shined kind of a, like a light or a, a mirror reflecting myself to understand who I am was moving around the world and living in like nine different places, getting married, you know, that finding that person and understand they, them showing you another side of you. And then for me, becoming a mother was the third big chunk of my life to it just helps you grow in different ways, you know? Um, but anyways, but you lived also in France and Italy, right? Yes. Uh, so uh, what we did was, okay, in my junior year of college, I really wanted to go study the Renaissance art in uh, Italy. Now, you know, there's a lot of Indian families that would not have condoned, first of all, sending their daughter to another country by herself, uh, you know, at, at a younger age, or also not supporting her creative um, desires. And I just always loved art. And I studied art history in college. That was my BA. So studying the Renaissance was a natural extension of that. And I remember, uh, I don't, I didn't actually hear the conversations between my mother and father. They were already stretched. They had three children in college at the same time at private universities. They had a lot of debt. They were taking out loans all the time. In addition to that, you know, I always had uh, work study jobs and in college, I always worked also part time so that I could, uh, you know, help support my education. But private schools are very expensive. So um, I didn't realize, I think, at the time what I was really asking my parents because going to Italy during uh, my junior year was just going to complicate their financial life. 
But my mother told me years and years later that she talked my dad into it, uh, that she actually said, you know what, honey, we only have the one daughter. And if she wants to do this, this is the time in her life to do it. So uh, my junior year was in Florence and I loved, I loved Italian. I loved the language. I loved the people. I loved the food. I loved everything about the um, art history and visiting all the museums and everything. Then in tw 2003, uh, I don't know if you remember, but, um, you know, the Iraq war uh, was on and it was all about weapons of mass destruction and so on in this country. And uh, my husband and I just looked at each other and said, you know what, uh, we don't really believe in the direction that our country is going in at this time in the U.S. So uh, why don't we go abroad somewhere? And also, this is our chance to sort of go live somewhere where we have never lived before. Uh, my husband speaks French fluently, and we had both been to Paris or, um, you know, lived for short periods of time in Paris before. So we decided to go live in Paris. And uh, so that's what we did in 2003. We just quit our jobs. And my husband was very nervous about it. He said, oh, no, what if we don't get jobs back? What if we and I have always wanted to take risks in my life and I always have taken risks. And so I said, you know what? Think about every time we have taken a risk in our lives. It's always worked out. It's going to work out because yeah, that's it'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be fun. And, be and besides, you know, we have our families uh, to ask. Uh, if we need help, you know, it, everything's going to work out. And it did, of course. It, it was so it's fascinating because one of uh, the things that happened about a month before we were scheduled to come back from Paris, I got an email from a friend of mine, uh, an old client here in California, who said, when are you coming back? I have this project I need you to do. Boom. You know, so uh, everything all meant to be all meant to be. It all just works yeah. out. And we had a it really, really does. Yeah. And we had a wonderful year. We just did artistic things. We just went to uh, we lived, by the way, in the seventh arrondissement. So we were right near all of the um, uh, the Louvre and, uh, you know, all of the antique uh, stores and things like that. So we had a wonderful time just walking around Paris and speaking French and taking classes at the Alliance. And what a fantastic adventure. You know, it's, it's, you're completely right. I, I agree with you on people, you know, if you get a chance, if you can do it, do it and live somewhere else, move somewhere else for a while. And it's very surprising how many people just don't try, Yeah, you know, for whatever reason, I understand financially what, if you can or whatever it is, but if you have the means and you can do it, but a lot of people just don't want to get out of their comfort zone. Um, I, I mean, I want to address one other thing. I think that a lot of reasons that um, uh, parents are, are, you know, afraid to allow their children to do something different than they've always done is because maybe they don't have experience in that field. Like, for example, you know, my father being an engineer, he didn't have any experience in the creative field. He didn't know how to help me get a job in advertising or a job, right. you know, or uh, setting up my own ad agency or anything like that. But, you know, I figured it out. I just figured, well, my family can't help me with this, but I can figure it out. I'm a smart enough person. Um, you know, I can ask one person and another person, another person. And sometimes I can just go cold turkey into a situation and say, look, this is what I'm looking for. Here's my portfolio and so on. So um, I think that, you know, had I asked my dad for help, I think he might have been like, honey, I don't know how to help you. But but I think young people just have to take their own initiative to go out and make their own lives for themselves because sometimes their parents aren't able to help them. 
100%. And, and, and I definitely don't blame my parents. I completely understand why they said and did and advise me like they did. I just didn't have my, felt like I didn't have my own agency to do it. And that's just my own issues. I didn't have the confidence. I was just kind of, I was always, I've always been a wanderer. I've always been, okay, let's just go with the flow kind of person. And so that's why I took the, the interesting path I've taken. But as you look back, I appreciate every turn I took, you know, and, and in every turn it was meant to be. So, um, and so and then I know you, you just mentioned that your husband was the one that kind of was like, okay, you're a writer. This is something you should do. And then you enrolled in the MFA program. And while you were uh, learning creative writing, you and your mom would travel back and forth to Jaipur uh, so that she could reconnect with her roots. And you ended up reconnecting with your roots as well. And I love that you took trips with your mom during this time. Can you like, is there a favorite story or any moments during these trips that you can recall? Well, I do remember, uh, you know, going to the Japper Palace and the Amer Fort with my mother. And we saw these places as other tourists see them. So we're walking around, you know, we're doing a self-guided tour and my mother is remembering things about her life and she is sharing them with me. One of the things that she remembered when we went to the Jaipur Palace is that she had had tea with the Maharani before we left for America because the Maharani had been very um, uh, modernized and she wanted to meet with the wives of all of the families who were going abroad. That is something that she wanted to know more about. You know, what were they going to do abroad? What were they, um, you know, poised for, what were they studying? And uh, so my mother had this wonderful chat with her. And I said, what did the Maharani talk to you about? Mom said, well, she asked me where we were going. And I said, America. And then she said, North or South, the Maharani asked me. And I replied, North. And my mom said, you see, I knew the difference. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> That's a good story. Had she not remembered, she just remembered at that time that she had tea, had she forgotten? Well, mom remembered so many things that um, she hadn't remembered before. You know, mom just remembered all kinds of things because when you're in the environment, like if you were to go back to any of the places that you have lived before, you'll go, oh yeah, you know what? There's that sweet shop that I always used to go to. And I met this guy one time there and he said this and I did this, yeah. Yes, I know. Actually, my memory is already fading at the age of 40, so I can't even imagine. <laughs> I, I feel like I've lost so many stories in there. Um, so then, you know, I know your mother is the, she's she's informed your protagonist, Lakshmi, in, in this book. And I, I know you've said before, Lakshmi is kind of a combination of your mother and you and what your mother may have done if she had a career. Did you ever ask her what she would have done for real yeah. in real life? Like what would have been her career? Yeah, my mother would have loved to have stayed in college and finished her psychology degree. She really ah. found that fascinating. Okay. And uh, But of course, you know, she had just started that first year and her father called her back and said, we've arranged this marriage for you. So she didn't have any opportunity to go back. And then right. by the time she was old enough, like when we came to America and she might have been able to go back to school, we were, uh, unlike a lot of South Asian families who come here with either no children or very tiny children, um, we were already on our way to college. Right. So because of that, my mother realized, oh, 
you know what? We are going to need a lot more money than my husband thinks we're going to need uh, yeah. to pay for college. And so um, she decided to get a job. Now, she had absolutely no training and she didn't have a college degree. So what could she do? She went to work in a factory uh, called Textron where they soldered motherboards together. This was back when they did big IBM mainframes and things like that. They needed very large circuit boards to be soldered together. And so that was what my mother was doing. And this is how one of the ways in which we were able to go to college because she got this job. And um, I do remember that it was a point of friction between my mother and father because he was a PhD. He was a, you know, a consulting engineer. And here was his wife working in a factory. I know that he was embarrassed by it, but my mother stuck to her guns. She said, look, we have to have this money for the kids. And I don't know any other way to get it. My English is not good enough. I can't teach. Uh, I, I, I've never had a degree. I, I don't know what else to do. So as I was developing Lakshmi's uh, trajectory in the henna artist, I thought, what could a woman uh, at the age of 17 in India, what could she do with no education and no formal training? Well, all little girls grow up watching their uh, mothers and their grandmothers and their neighbors' hands, uh, you know, being painted with henna. Of course, right. we could do that. And in Rajasthan, that's where the best henna is supposed to come from. There are entire villages devoted to making uh, henna powder. And so yeah. she just have, you know, gotten that powder, ground it really fine, and then started adding her oils and ingredients to it and had this beautiful henna paste. So I thought, you know what? Let me give her some artistic talent like I've always had. And then with this henna paste, she can make a living as a henna artist. If your mom, do you think if you guys had never moved to the U.S., do you think your mom would have had the same conviction and the same advice to you? No, okay. no. Was it moving to the U.S. that changed yes. her? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think, well, first of all, I think she always had a rebellious streak in her, always. I think that she always felt that she was capable of doing a lot more than she was given credit for by her father or my father or any of the men in her life and even her own mother. You know, I think she always felt that her mother let her down, didn't support her um, because she didn't have any agency either. You know, my grandmother right. didn't have any agency. So, right. um, so I think that when she came here, my mother saw with her eyes wide open in 1967, there was a great deal of revolution going on culturally in the United States. There was the sexual revolution. There were all of the college students protesting the Vietnam War. Uh, there were women burning bras. Gloria Steinem is writing an article uh, in, you know, a Playboy magazine. And, you know, there's all of this great stuff going on. And my mother is looking at it and thinking, wow, women have voices here. Children have voices here. I could raise my kids so differently. Why not? And she almost did it, I think, in rebellion to the way she had been raised. Right. Um, my father. Was, Understandably. Yeah. And my father was so busy working. You know, he just he just worked so hard. My dad was always, always a very hard worker. He worked nights, weekends all the time. So I don't even think he knew that my mother was raising us in this very modern, you know, American way. And he comes I, home. He's like, what's happening right, to the house? Right, right. <laughs> I'm so confused. Right. And by the time my older brother is bringing home his American girlfriends, my dad's like, what? The, what is 
<laughs> Did, I didn't get the memo on this. Like I didn't sign off. I don't really understand. So it's exactly what I do with my husband now. I'm like, it's fine. Just it's go. It's, I got this. Don't worry about it. <laughs> do you think your father maybe now understands everything your mother went through? I think that he has a much better idea of what she went through. Um, okay. I, I also uh, will tell you that after 40 something years of marriage, my mother did get a divorce. Okay. And that was, you know, uh, that took a lot of courage for an Indian woman who was alone. Her kids had by then all moved away. They lived elsewhere. Um, you know, they, you know, we all lived in different states at that time. And uh, my mother was actually alone. And I think one time when she was talking to me on the phone, I said, Mom, you know, you're clearly unhappy. And I love dad. I love you. I want both of you to be happy. I would really like to see that, you know, for the remainder of your life, you have somebody in your life, um, you know, whom you feel much more compatible with. And lo and behold, before I knew it, and I didn't even know it for about two years, but my mother started planning her divorce. Um, wow. She went to a lawyer, she figured out what her rights were. Uh, and, you know, I, my dad is a great guy. And without him, you know, we would not be exactly where we are. We would not have had the great education that we would have had and so on. But also he was raised in a very different way and his upbringing really determined the kind of patriarch that he was. So I think that in his mind, uh, while he loved my mother, she was the wife and mother of his, you know, kids it wasn't like she was this woman that he respected in and of her own right. Right, um, right. He couldn't separate the two. Yeah. So my mother got a divorce. She moved down close to Brad and me in California. And then she just blossomed. She just turned into a really happy person. And uh, she bought her own condo. And when I picked her up at the airport uh, for the first time when she came to California, she said, honey, that's the first flight I ever took by myself. Wow. So, and she, and so she was finding herself again. Yeah. Yeah. And she chose her own condo. She, she did it with her own money. Um, she got her own car. She tooled around in her own little car. She learned how to swim for the first time in her life. That's when she started making jewelry uh, because it was like a brand new craft for her. And she loved crafty things anyway. Uh, she just, she uh, found a community plot, like a garden that she was growing of fruits yeah. and vegetables in. She loved fruits and vegetables. She, you know, in India, that's what she missed the most, uh, the fruits and right. vegetables. So, right. um, you know, so she, see, she just blossomed into this wonderful person and she told jokes. I didn't even know my mother was a funny person until she, she was free of all the patriarchy. So it's kind of like Lakshmi, yeah. right? Like finding herself again, you know, obviously at a later age, which is even more courageous when when you're in your 60s and you've been with someone for so long. Like, I feel like a lot of people would be like, well, you know, I can deal with it at this point, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So she definitely had a fire in her still, which is amazing. But then, you know, let, let me tell you what happened at the end of their life. Sure. So my mother uh, was... Um, you know, we had hospice for her. This is 2012. Okay. We had hospice for her. And she was at that time living with Brad and me. Um, because, you know, there was a point where she could not take care of herself. And um, so, you know, I had, I had uh, caregivers coming in and so on. And uh, she, we could tell that she didn't have very much time left. 
And uh, my mother had been asking me to ask for dad. Um, and so I called dad and I said, dad, there isn't very much time left. And mom keeps asking me to have you come down. I thought he would say no, but he took the next flight out and he came down to California. And as he walked into the room, my mother turned her head and she saw him and she smiled and he went over to her and he said, Sudha, I have always loved you. I will always love you. And shall I make us a cup of tea? And my mom nodded her head because at that time she wasn't talking anymore. And by the time he was finished with his tea making, she was gone. And I was so um, pleased that they had, you know, I'd never actually experienced the word closure before, but I really do think that that for them was closure. I I do think that they were tied to one another in a way that, you know, a lot of people who've been married for a very long time and together are. Um, But I think also by then my dad had been able to see just like Hari did with Lakshmi he was able to see that maybe his wife was her own person. And, and needed something more. Yeah. Wow. That is powerful. I did not expect that story. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. I'm like, that has to be part of the book somehow too. Um, so no, thank you for sharing that with me. And then, and, and then how is your dad doing? Is he? Oh, that's great. That's okay. Great. All right. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Dad yeah. is dad walks two miles a day. He is, uh, he cooked for himself. Uh, he, you know, he's actually a really good cook. So whenever I go down to visit him in LA, he is always, uh, he's always got some subjis or another, another, you know, that he's made. Good for him. Oh yeah. 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 And, um, good for yeah. him. And he plays, he plays bridge all the time. And so now during COVID, he's been playing online bridge. My dad is probably more tech savvy than a lot of 88 year olds are. Yeah. Good for it. I know my parents are, my dad's 78, my mom's 70. I'm like, they're like doing all these things on all these different apps and Zooms. And I'm like, who are you people? And why haven't you called, like, why are you too busy for me now? I don't really understand what's going on. Did your parents Um, also have an arranged marriage? They did. They did. Um, my mom got married at 22, which was like the latest ever in life, apparently, that anyone could yeah. ever get married. They were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with her? I'm like, oh, my God, at 22, I was barely walking. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, arranged, I don't know, 50-year anniversaries next year. Is it next year? Oh, my gosh. And, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've learned in going back to India um, so many times is that now 30 is the new 22 or 18. Yeah. So yeah. if a girl is not married by the time she's 30, um, then the whole family starts panicking. Right. And um, I ran across one person. Uh, her name is Shri, Shri Moy. Oh, I, I can't remember her, her last name, but um, she is advocating for single status for women. If if a woman wants to stay single forever, or if a wants if a woman is single because of a divorce or a widowhood, let her be single. Do not force right. her into a marriage which may end up being very unhappy. And so she has started a program called Status Single. She wrote a book about it, which was hugely popular. And now she has these uh, weekly or monthly radio talks with other single uh, women who are very accomplished. 
And I think that this is a really great thing for India. They need to realize that not every woman wants to be married and not every woman wants to have a child, which is what I'm trying to say in the henna artist with Lakshmi. So in, in the henna artist, Lakshmi chooses to be childless in the way that I have chosen to be childless. So I know, you know, you obviously, um, every, I, so many of my friends have read this, uh, The Henna Artist. I know it's picked up by Reese Witherspoon's book club. I saw that interview. It was awesome. It's being translated in 23 languages. Amazing. I mean, this is worldwide. And then, of course, it's going to be made into a TV adaptation starring Frida Pinto, who yes. I think we've heard of. Yes. Very exciting. And you're an executive producer. Yes. So... How is it going and when does it come out? Well, um, so there's a lot of development work that has to go into a screen adaptation. And uh, the first thing that they have to do, of course, is figure out who's going to be writing the pilot episode. And then they have to pull all the other uh, framework of the story around that. So um, they're writing all of the episodes and sort of figuring out what the summaries of the different seasons would be. Then they have to pitch that to a streaming service and a streaming service has to be able to buy it. Um, And right now, I think they're looking at some anywhere between, you know, four to six million dollars an episode. So they're looking for a lot of money. And uh, so then when they get it uh, in that kind of, you know, that that's what something like a Downton Abbey episode costs. Yeah. So um, when they can uh, get all of that together, uh, they can also start building the other uh, parts of the crew, the director, the, um, you know, all of the casting location, all of those kinds of people that they need to pull together. Right. And um, then they can finally start shooting. And because it's taking place in India, it's going to have to be in Jaipur and Shimla. Now that means that COVID has to be cleared, right, uh, in India before uh, they can start sending people there. And I I hope to be there for the actual filming. Um, Right now, they said that it might be about 2022. 2022. Okay. Around the corner-ish. Yeah. Well, I, I was a production assistant for Cal Penn. About 20 years ago, I think I just oh. gave him like coffee and tea. I took him like jet skiing once. I don't even know what I was doing. It's one of those early American Desi movies. Uh, uh-huh. I was just on the helping with the film set for six months. So if you need any production assistance, <laughs> I, I know how to do that. Okay. <laughs> it's very exciting. And so I actually, I wanted to summarize some of what I like to call the pearls of wisdom that you, you've given throughout the book and in, in your interviews. First, I know on your Instagram, you've written something along the lines of reimagining life at 63 or reimagining. And I just love that. I love that it's never too late. You know, I, I felt like, oh my God, I've restarted my career at 40. I'm starting launching this podcast and launching my website and my brand. And I'm like, you know what? It's just never too late. It's so you can reimagine life at and career at any time like your mom is an example you know and like what you're doing it just it it just inspires me more um and that you don't have to have your career figured out in your 20s you know and and in fact most people don't and that's okay um and i think the other pearl of wisdom that i love that seems to be a theme in this book and and in your life is that you want women to know they have a right to choose what they want to do if they want to be a stay-at-home mom 
and have kids, whatever it is, fine. If they don't, they don't. It's just you have the right to choose. Yes, absolutely. That is powerful, I think. I think that was the one. And the third one, really quick, is that, and he said this in Reese's, in the, in the interview, that I want to matter. I yes. think women oh feel God. that way. Like women want to matter more than just in their homes. They want a voice. And so I, I love those three lessons that you kind of impart in different ways. You know, there's an automatic respect and an automatic power that is just given to men from the day they're born. From the right. day they're born, it's like, oh, of course, this man is going to grow up to be something and he's going to take care of his family. And, um, you know, we will accord him the respect that goes along with that. Women do not automatically have that respect and we deserve it. Frankly, uh. I think that we do so much more than men on any given day just because of the fact that we bring new generations into this world and that we're responsible for raising them. Um, and, you know, as, as we grow up, we realize that we have our own ambitions, that maybe there's yes. something we want to accomplish that is just as significant as anything a man is doing. And we should be given the opportunity to make that decision and to follow that path if we need support along that path um, because we already have children, because we you know, need somebody else to take care of that future generation, then we should be given that support because we have so much to contribute. Women have so much to contribute so in this much. life. And, and we deserve it. I think that's, I actually deserve this. Like, why am I questioning what investing in myself and giving myself that that boost that I need, that support that I need, you know? And why did it take me so long to realize that? But I'm glad I did. I'm yeah. glad I did. It just took me a while. Yeah. So, you know, so many women ask me, oh, I want to be able to write, but, um, you know, it just costs so much money. I said, what, what is it about it that it costs? If you take an evening workshop, it might cost you $100. It might cost you $300. And it will last for, I don't know, a given like six weeks to maybe 12 weeks. Uh, is that really so much money. Don't you spend that much on your manicures, on your haircuts? Uh, it is worth investing energy in yourself and money in yourself to get to the next level, to find out what you're capable of. Yes. You'll never find out what you're capable of unless you test yourself. Yes. And it's scary. And I think also a lot of women think, well, I shouldn't spend money. Like you said, I shouldn't spend money on this. I shouldn't spend money on the new driveway, I don't know, whatever, yes. whatever they're thinking, whatever randomness yes. we think about, because we're yes. all thinking about a billion crazy things. Right. Uh, God, God built us in a very inter interesting way. I think. And that new driveway will not survive you, but no. something you leave in this world that you created all of your own wit and intelligence and uh, talent that will survive you. And that's, I think what it means to matter. I want to matter in that way. Now, you know, you, I mean, you are a mother, so you are going to absolutely leave that legacy behind. You have your children that you're leaving behind as a way to say, hey, this is what I created in this world. And look at what beautiful people I did create. And they are going to go on and contribute to the world in their own way. But a woman like me who has no children and never really wanted to have her own children, I want to leave something behind also. And uh, that can be uh, maybe I'm paying it forward now with other women that I am grooming to also follow their path. That is a way in which I am contributing to the world. And it's so important to me to do that. 
I think not to sound cheesy, but like in a way, the these books that you're writing, they're kind of like your children and the people and all of us women who are reading these things and listening to you are kind of like your family, you yeah. know? And so it's a, it's a different legacy than actually having kids. It's just another way of doing it. Absolutely. And, um, you know, earlier, uh, I think you had said the book is being translated into 23 languages. Well, my agent just told me it's 31 now. So 31, which means that the book, The Henna Artist and the sequel, The Secret Keeper of Japur, they are reaching women throughout the world, which is just amazing to me. Because every woman around the world, no matter what culture she's from, and she may not actually be or know anything about the South Asian culture. She is saying to me, this is a universal story. This is a story about women trying to gain agency. And that resonates with us. I think every single woman, I don't care what position you're in right now, CEO or housewife, everyone will, like this book will resonate with everyone. So current project. So I know this is turning into a series Yes. So The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, I believe you can pre-order that right now. You can pre-order that. Okay. Uh, okay. Definitely on Amazon and through any kind of bookstores. But also um, it will be out on June 22nd as Yay. a hardcover. Yeah, I'm so excited about that. They do such a beautiful job at the publishers on all of these book covers. Uh, and it, it makes people want to pick it up, you know, from the bookshelf at the bookstore or the library. Um, and, uh, then there will be a third novel that I'm working on currently. That's the one I was telling you about that, uh, I hope to be in Europe at this time. Because in that one, what I'm dealing with is Radha is a grown up. That's Lakshmi's sister. She is working as a perfumer in Paris. And what I'm trying to show with that is actually the trajectory that you and I have had, which is South Asians traveling all around the world, settling in around the world. Our diaspora is so huge. And I want to talk about that diaspora. I want to say, look, we are contributing to all kinds of places all over the world. And this is important. It's important for us to be recognized as positive contributors to society. Total and exact. That's exactly what my podcast is. Alka, you just need to be on my podcast at all times. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're not just contributing. We're doing super unique and cool things, you know? And that's, yeah. Alka, you get my podcast. You get it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I love how she's a perfumer in Paris. Like it kind of connects with Lakshmi being a henna artist, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm very excited about that. So the secret keep of Jaipur. June 27th. Yes. And then the trilogy, the third book, we don't have a title yet, right? We don't have a title. I'm lousy okay. with titles, by the way, Ami. Okay. So oh. my, my publisher always comes up with the titles. I'll, I'll just email you random ideas. Just I'll just throw <laughs> it out there. And then if I get one right, you can hire me up as a PA or whatever you need. I'm happy to make, I'm happy to be the Chaiwala. I'm good with that. Oh, you are. You are hilarious. You deserve, you know what? You deserve your own show. You deserve your own TV show. You are hilarious. You know what? You, you should be, oh my gosh, you could be a great talk show host, like on television. You're beautiful Aww. and you're articulate. And I can, I can tell, you know, I feel so respected by you because you have done a, such a close read of the henna artist and you have obviously listened to a couple of my interviews. So you knew exactly what questions you wanted to follow up on. I really yeah. appreciate that. Thank you for showing me that respect. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, you've done many interviews. I'm like, I can't ask her the same thing over and over again. I'm like, <laughs> also like if we were hanging out, having a glass of wine, which we will, yeah. what would I talk to you about? Like, I don't want this to be an interview. I just want right. to talk. 
Right. And then whatever happens, happens. Um, so I want to I want to end this with a little fun round. So okay. it's the first first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. What is your drink of choice? Oh, uh, gin martini. <laughs> oh my god, I love you. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what is yours and your hubby's song? Uh, let's. Oh, um, uh, Louis Armstrong. It's a wonderful world. What a what a wonderful world. Yes, that's what we played at our wedding. What is your guilty pleasure in terms of binges? Okay, um, it's all those Indian sweets, which I actually can't get anywhere. Right, so it is gulab jamun, it is ras malai, um, it is kulfi, it is mango ice cream. Oh my gosh, all of those things I absolutely oh, adore. so good. I'm so <laughs> lactose intolerant now, but I still want it so bad. Oh my god. I mean, I won't sit next to anyone afterwards, but I'm <laughs> cold. Totally, totally fine with that. It's totally fine. <laughs> who do you see playing the characters? If all of these become series, who do you see playing the main character for the rest of the trilogy? Well, of course, Frida Pinto is going to play Lakshmi for the uh, for this one, right? Yeah, but she'll she'll continue. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, now I don't know. I absolutely. And not that familiar with so many of the Indian actors right now. And they will definitely have to cast an Indian actor who can um, speak English as well as they can speak Hindi because they're going to be doing both throughout the, the film. And, you know, one thing, Ami, I'm so excited about is that this is a 99% Indian cast. So, you know, a South Asian cast. Yeah, it was very important for me in this book to not have it be from a British point of view or have it be, you know, whitewashed. Like filled, yeah, whitewashed or filled with British people who were who are being really good to Indians. You know, because I'm, I'm, that story has been done a billion times and I'm tired of it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Totally. It's we're, we're totally over. I love that. That's so exciting. And I'll be the chai wala to round it all in. So it's going to be awesome. Actually, gin and martini, gin person. I'll, I'll help you with your drinks. Okay. <laughs> and then the final and most important question. I think I know the answer to this, but where do you want to travel to once the world opens up? Absolutely, Paris. I've got to go to France. I've got to go to all of the perfume labs. And uh, then I want to travel to Grasse, which is where they have uh, all, all of the, um, you know, the flower farms. I want to go yeah. to the lavender farms. I also want to go to Bulgaria, where they do all the rose harvesting for the fragrances. And then I want to go to a place in India where um, they also do very interesting scent uh, manipulation. So, I, you know, there's so many places that I want to go to really lend book number three with as much sensory uh, data as I uh, put in the henna artist. So I want people to actually feel like they're there in the fields as we are harvesting petals and putting them in fragrances and so on. So that's, that's amazing. I, I love it. So I'm going to follow you there. So that, that's going to happen. <laughs> Just, you know, make sure, make sure that you put a very long video on for your four-year-old. Otherwise she'll come looking for you. <laughs> oh yeah. No, she's already knocking on the door and she's like, whoa, what's going on? I said, I'm talking to Olka auntie. She was like, wait, who's Olka auntie? I'm like, you haven't met yet. Don't worry about it. I'm acting like it's like an auntie that's like a neighbor or something. And so, um, no, that's it. I, okay. I'm done. I, I mean, I have, I could probably talk to you forever. I lived in France for a summer as well. Oh, I had my first where? kiss there. Where? I lived in uh, Britannia. Brittany oh, how in a small town called Lombard. Um, I was exchange student there at 17 
And I absolutely, I mean, it was one of the best summers of my life. It was, it was a one summer. I didn't have to go to Hindu camp. It was very exciting. <laughs> so instead of Hindu camp, I'll just make out with French dudes. It's totally oh, <laughs> and don't you just love the French language? Just everything. Oh, it was wow. just, and I lived in a small village, so it was really, really quaint. Oh. Lived with like a host family, very French. Oh. It was just, I, I, I fell in love and would love to go back and see them again one day. Oh my gosh, so. you really have lived uh, 3,000 lifetimes. I love it. I'm copying you. I'm, I'm following your path, yes. my friend. You are my inspiration. So I will be in touch. I'll let you know this should all be edited, cleaned up lovely uh and good to publish by next week next but i'll but i'll be in touch and congrats on everything i can't wait to see what happens i can't wait to see the series okay guys that settles it i'm getting a talk show somehow i think it's gonna happen even though this is kind of a talk show but you know what i'm saying guys check out the henna artist you won't regret it it's such a fun read and I think it'll really resonate with a lot of women out there. After talking to Olka, I could really see her in this book. I breezed through it in a couple of days and I never do that. So check it out. You can follow Olka on Instagram, Olka Joshi, and on her site, olkajoshi.com. Check out what she's doing. Her new book comes out in June. She also does a lot of book clubs. And so if you're interested in having her live at one of your book clubs, reach out to her. I think she would love to do it. As always, you can follow me at Tucker.podcast. Check out the new site. Please be nice and rate me at some point. Subscribe. All that jazz. Super easy. You have nothing else to do. Come on, guys. Lots of fun things happening in April. Lots of new interviews, of course, and a few additional things I'll be doing. So stay tuned. Ooh, are you curious now? Okay, I need to calm down. It's 530 in the morning. Thank you guys for listening. I will see you next week. This is Tuckered Out.